Um, just I want to give you a little bit of background, and then we'll pray. Last week we ba- briefly introduced the book of First Peter. Obviously, Peter's written by First Peter's written by Peter himself, and we know he was a guy that stumbled, struggled in his early years of walking with the Lord. He's often the man who put his foot in his mouth, a man who was very zealous in good ways, but sometimes got himself in trouble and found himself um, in a hard place as he denied himself, <coughs> just denied Christ three times. And later on, Christ restores him. And so he's the author of First Peter. And the basic situation that's going on in this book <coughs> is that Rome, Rome is burning, <laughs> and uh, the people um, in the broader region of that time are, are upset because um, their house is burning, their, their, <laughs> their livelihood is being taken away from them, and most people believe it was Nero who set the fire, um, <clears throat> and, and the people are turning against Nero, and Nero has this mindset like, I just want to build a lot of buildings to make myself and name look great. And so he has to burn down old buildings in order to build new buildings. And so with all the heat coming toward Nero, Nero goes, how do I turn the persecution and anger that's pointed toward me to towards somewhere else? And so he has this clever idea to say and to blame the Christians. And so he uses the Christians as a scapegoat and tells everyone it was the Christians that set fire, and so all the attention turned toward the Christians, and so they, they, they people basically began to persecute the Christians, um, and they started to disperse and to scatter throughout the various regions in and around um, Asia Minor, and so during that time, you know, people lost their jobs, their livelihood. I believe families were split up. Things were not easy, things were not comfortable, and they just found themselves in a hard, hard situation of trials, of suffering, of just thinking, man, you know, God, you know, why why is this going on? And so what God wants to do is remind his children and remind us today, how are we supposed to live when things are difficult and when things seem like there's a lack of help? And the last thing Peter reminded them as they're being <coughs> scattered, <coughs> these Jewish believers, these exiled believers, that God wants to multiply grace and peace to you. And so with that in mind, let's pray and we'll jump into today's message. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. We thank you that it is true. And I'm having a problem with this stand. Because I'm so buff, I ripped it off. Maybe Dylan can help me out. <laughs> yeah, that one is not as strong. Oh, this one actually trickled itself back on. Sorry about that. I won't yank off the pulpit anymore. <clears throat> Father, we, we love you. We thank you for this love letter that you've given us. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would um, minister to us individually, as his families, and as um, as a corporate body, Lord, that we would grow to know and love and follow you all the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin with this is a statement that our past perspective and our future outlook 
affects and impacts how we live now. It's a very big deal. And I'll kind of tease this out in several ways. Our past perspective and our future outlook impacts how we live in the present today, no matter what's going on. So let me give you some examples. Um, in the past, this is a long time ago when I was four years old, so 43 years ago, I remember running around the house just like a rambunctious four-year-old, um, and my mom would iron um, our clothes, particularly dad's clothes, his, his nice shirts and stuff. His, it was the day and the generation before they had wrinkle-free wrinkle dress shirts. Um, shirts were just very wrinkly, and so they demanded regular ironing. And so my mom would set up the ironing board between the family room and the kitchen and plug it in, and she would just iron the clothes. And so I remember this one day, my mom was not in front of the ironing board, and I was just running by, and I wasn't thinking, and I ran by, and I tripped over the cord of the iron. And so I fell on the ground and I see the iron coming down and it landed on me. It landed on my inner thigh. And so, <laughs> so my inner thigh, you know how iron is kind of like shaped like this. So <laughs> the iron burned my inner thigh. So it's kind of this little triangle shape and a whole bunch of little circles on my thigh. And so when it, <laughs> when it came to me and irons, um, I didn't like them. It hurt me. It left a scar that was there for, for many years. It, it, I can't see it now, but definitely throughout most of my childhood and into my teenage years, I saw these. I, I didn't like irons. So whenever I would go to Target or Walmart, I would think of those irons as the bad guys and I would just scurry by them because I didn't want to look at those irons because they, they hurt me. And so I was scarred um, <clears throat> by the irons. And so there may be things in your past that haunt you. You might have been in an abusive situation. You might have gone through a certain hardship. Maybe you were poor um, and didn't have much clothes or food to eat or just different things. Those past things may haunt you. But you might have good a good past, a good upbringing, a loving father, just nurtured well. And those, <clears throat> those past memories also impact you in the present. So the past may haunt you and it may help you. It just depends what kind of past you had. And so when you look and think about the future, your future perspective on the future impacts you too. If you have a positive outlight, it helps you to live in the present very positively. If you have a doom and gloom perspective of the future, it'll probably negatively affect you in the here and now. So as a child, probably my biggest impression was for 18 years, I went through formal school from kindergarten twice, 12 grades, bachelor degree and master's degree. I had this mindset like I hated school. I knew it was necessary. I liked the social aspects. I really did enjoy learning. But when it came to school, I always looked forward to Thanksgiving break. Easter break, spring break, and yes, the summer break. Always looking forward to the breaks. And so my mind was always focused on when things would be done and when I can have a break. And so, um, <clears throat> and so that was really what motivated me. Some future goal in the end to get me through my present studies in, in front of my face. And so as we think about looking forward, some of us have our eyes on 
you know, when will COVID end? When will we all get the vaccine? Or some of us are looking forward to summertime or, or, or being married. Some of us are engaged, at least one couple's engaged and they were looking forward to being married. Some of us are expecting to have a kid. And so you're looking like, well, what's it going to be like with my second kid or my first kid? Or some of us are just thinking like, man, I can't wait till I retire. And so you have these future destinations in your mind that kind of help you get through life in the present, or you have something to look forward to. And so what Peter's going to do, he's going to remind these saints who are suffering, who are struggling, whose lives have been turned upside down, he's going to remind them of two particular events, one in the past and one in the future. And so he's going to remind them of the past of the gospel. He's going to reach them all the way back in eternity past, which he did last week because we talked about how God elected believers to be saved. And he's going to talk about the cross. These two fixed events that impact us in the future. And then what Peter's going to do is this back and forth thing, present, future, present, future, present, future, as he makes an argument to minister to these believers in the present. So as he talks about the future, he's going to remind these believers that they have a future hope, they have eternity, and they have a set destination that they will one day inherit the greatest inheritance of all, which is God's glory and God's future and eternal rewards. And so this is how, this is a fascinating way to impactfully minister to someone. I mean, just think of, you know, our future things that we long for the next time we go to the beach or to the mountains or the scars. That hurt. Those things impact our personality and our thoughts now. And so we just think about probably the two most significant events in all human history, the cross and when Jesus returns. Those two events minister to us big time as we walk through this passage today. And my hope that as we look to these two most significant events that one has happened and one will happen, that it will lift your spirits. It will remove that shadow of gloom and darkness you feel and that it will refresh your spirit and it'll give you and clarify the perspective of how to live out the gospel now as we think about gospel hope. So if you have your Bibles, I had Rachel read the first three verses, 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 5, but we're going to go all the way down to 12. And so just track with me. The first um, <coughs> thought or point we're going to look at is when you embrace the gospel <coughs> in the present, it will help you and grant you a, a living hope. And so Peter gives sound biblical truth, not advice, truth to his readers and to us today. Peter's not giving them nonsense or platitude for those who are suffering. Oh, it does get better. Oh, it does go away. It's not necessarily going to go away soon. I mean, I thought COVID was going to last two or three months. It's been a year now, and it probably won't go away. It's going to be part of our life, just like the flu. It's a virus that will continue to run around the world and everywhere. So, it doesn't help to say stuff, oh, it will be over. Oh, the vaccine will take care of everything. No, it won't take care of everything. All right, it'll, it'll make things better, but it won't take care of it. I just don't, I'm not convinced of that. It may, but I do know what will take care of everything when Jesus returns and it'll be all gone when the new heavens and earth are established. Uh, but until then, <clears throat> Peter gives this amazing encouragement in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, declaring, blessed be the God. 
So it's easy when circumstances look bad to just look at the circumstances and make that your God. You're consumed by your circumstances. Things aren't going my way. I've lost this and lost that. And this complaint. But Peter wants to point the attention of his reader to God himself and to remind him that it is God alone who will satisfy you. He alone is the one that's going to make you happy. And so he's, he's saying blessed. That means happy. It's not a happiness based off circumstances. It's a happiness based off the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's a happiness when you are rooted and abiding in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what Peter does is points us to God himself and to remind us that he is the creator. He is the holy one. He is the sovereign redeemer. He's the unchanging one. He's the omnipotent, omnipotent one. And he's the sovereign ruler of all of human history. And so that's the first thing that Peter does to fix and turn our attention on God himself, not the shifting shadows of this world. And then he reminds us very specifically that God is also our father. We have human fathers and we have God the father. So for those of us, well, we'll talk about Peter, Peter's case. As he's ministering to the Jewish exiles, those who believe in him, those who are elect, he's, he says to them that God also is your father. He's your heavenly father and he cares greatly for you. And so prior to to coming to Christ, prior to recognizing as God the Father, your relationship is more impersonal. God is this distant, he's this maybe cosmic being. But when you come to know Father personally, he's our Father, like in the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer. A personal pronoun is used. He's our Father, it speaks a personal, intimate, close relationship. And so what God does is he is adopted the orphans, <clears throat> lost children to become his sons and daughters by his amazing grace into his mar marvelous family of faith and grace. And so just a quick picture. I asked my kids for royalties, but it's interesting how children trust their father in the most simplest ways. Um, there's one positive thing that my dad taught me as a kid, and it's mostly positive, but he forced me to take swimming lessons all the time so I would know how to swim. And so once I had kids and once they could kind of crawl a little bit and run, I pretty much said, Trace, we're going to sign up for kids for swimming lessons and go to the pool as much as we can. Usually that's once a week in the summertime. So for Phoebe, Paulus, and Manny, once they learned how to walk, it, be it was time to go swimming. Even before they learned how to walk, I would just bring them in the pool and you know, put a special diaper on them so it doesn't mess up the pool. But I would stand like, you know, five or six feet away from the edge of the pool. And I would tell Phoebe Pauls and Manny, run to daddy and jump in. And they would just run and run and they would jump in. But they, they, they would do this not even thinking, but they trusted their dad to catch them. But, you know, they, they couldn't jump six feet and they didn't realize they couldn't swim. So they would just jump and they're just like going like this flailing in the water. But I just thought it was funny. They just jumped and they just couldn't swim. But they trusted their daddy because what? I was their dad and they were a child. We had this trusting relationship. So they would jump and flail around and eventually after they would blow some bubbles, I, I would pick them up and then we hug and they laugh and everything. And I would put them on the edge again and they would do it again. This is really funny. But that's just a picture of a father's relationship with their 
children in the same way. That's just a small taste of God's heavenly father relationship with us. There's a, there's a trust. There's a comfort. Um, knowing, that the, knowing that the father desires the best for his children. And so what Peter wants to do is remind him that they have a heavenly father. You could trust in him. You could delight in him. And you could obey him in these difficult and hard situations. And so Peter goes on and reminds him that they have a Savior and a Lord in Jesus Christ. And you can trust in this Savior and Lord. Understand when Jesus is, <coughs> Jesus is Savior, so in one sense we are secure in his finished work on the cross. We have been atoned. Um, that's a done deal. And, <coughs> and we're also to relate to him as Lord. Uh, we are to submit our lives to him. And what, in, in a sense, by saying to these Jewish believers that Jesus is Lord, he's reminding them, you may be wanting to submit to your own self or be stressed and have, be filled with anxiety, but the way we resolve that is submit your thoughts and your heart to the Lord. There's so much is being said in this little sentence to these exiled believers and ministering to them. God's your Father. Jesus is your Lord. And guess what? That God has rescued them and redeemed them according to his great mercy. If God's going to rescue you with a great mercy, he's going to continue to sanctify you and encourage you with this great mercy. And so, so the reason God provided a glorious salvation for mankind is on this basis. He exercised great mercy or divine mercy. Mercy is withholding what you deserve and what mankind deserved after breaking God's law or really being born sinners is death, judgment, and eternal punishment. And so he reminds them, <coughs> he reminds them and these sinners that you've been granted this great mercy. And may that encourage you. And, <coughs> and, and if you go on in verse three, that it is this great mercy that God caused God initiated, God moved, God did. It's all in the past tense. It says here that God caused us to be born again. So as these believers are suffering, he's, he's saying, don't live your earthly lives. He's saying, God is, he's reminding that God has caused you to be born again. Live out your born again lives. Live out your eternal lives. Live out the reality that you are no longer dead in sin. Live out the reality that you are now alive in Christ. God has done a miracle in your life to make your heart in such a way that it was spiritually dead, hard to what? Spiritually alive and soft and open to what God and the Spirit of God would do in your life. And so he's reminding them what God has done in the past, that you would live out this born-again life, and you would do so with a living hope. So make a tally. With a living hope, make another tally. He wants you to cling on to this hope. If you're going to cling on to these things of the world and this earthly perspective, your heart will sink, and you will be depressed, and you'll need antidepressant drugs and all this stuff to deal with it. Or you can just distract yourself with a lot of movies, or you could drink alcohol, or you could get high on the most high and cling your focus on to Jesus, the living hope. This is key. Um, the fact that he rose again, we see 
that our living hope is based on the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. Okay? Um, <clears throat> many were around when Jesus hung on the cross, when he gave his last breath and he died. Many were around and witnessed the fact that he was buried in a tomb and is in there three days. Many would believe that he was truly dead, and he was truly dead. But we know three days later, Jesus rose again, and he conquered death, and he conquered sin. And over 500 people witnessed him, okay? So he conquered death. This is a huge deal. I was thinking about, about a year ago and a few weeks, Kobe Bryant died, and a lot of people went to his funeral, and they know he is dead. He is not coming back. I mean, the people memorialize them, and they put memorials out and try to, you know, do things in the memory of him. But he is not coming back, okay? You can worship Kobe, but it's not going to do anything for you or to help him to come back. But for Jesus Christ, he rose again from the dead. And because of that, we have a living hope. We have a future hope, and that future hope impacts us now. And as I was just kind of processing this, <clears throat> For the Christian, this, is, this one fact that Jesus rose again is distinct. What makes Christianity distinct from all other religions? Okay, so it's, when I was an undergrad, I studied world religions. And so I studied Eastern religion. And so I, I realized that there was this philosopher named Siddhartha. And he was kind of the leader of some of the writings of the Buddhist faith. You know, that guy died. He's not coming back, all right? Joseph Smith, he died. He's not coming back, right? Mohammed died. He's not coming back either. They're all dead. They're still in the grave. But Jesus rose again. And because of that, we can bank that we have every reason to have a living hope. And one day Jesus will come back and take us home because what? He was able to deliver himself and take himself home. And so for that, we can have a joy that abides now. Because of that, we can endure the trials that we go through at this time. And at the same time, we can eagerly await the Lord's return. Number two, or thought two, and found in verse four, um, <clears throat> we can trust the gospel. And we have gospel trust for, for the future here. Uh, Paul knows and understands his reader are going through a hard and difficult time. As I've said over and over, they lost much of their earthly possessions. And so he knows that they lost their earthly possessions. I, sometimes I think, you know, what happens if a robber would come in our house or we had a you know, major hurricane that's wiped out all our belongings, our wedding photos, our cold, our food, I mean, our clothing got uh, muddy. Sometimes I think of those who went through Katrina in the New Orleans. You know, what would happen if that would happen here? We would be thinking about our possessions. Oh, my computer. Oh, my iPad. Everything is ruined. But what Peter wants them to do is to lift their eyes, and he urges them to live this born-again life with an eternal hope, and to put their minds on to the future reward that God will give them in verse 4. It says that in, this, in the future, he will grant them an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
Okay, this is a place where, what? Moth and rust doesn't get to it, right? We know that in the Sermon on the Mount. Heaven is the best place to put your treasure. And he talks about this future inheritance in several ways. Um, he talks about <coughs> this inheritance and he says, <coughs> and I just want to ask some simple questions. What is this inheritance? Peter, Peter wanted to show these persecuted believers not to look on their past troubles and loss, but to look future onto the future inheritance and to lock their eyes on the future hope, not dwelling on their present circumstances. And the future hope is heaven and God's glory. And what will it be like? Well, he says, he describes it in this way. It'll be an inheritance that's not perishable or imperishable. So the inheritance that God is given, going to give is not subjected to, to things that will decay in this world. Um, the Greek word here, for imperishable is interesting. It refers to something that <clears throat> that will that will be unravaged by like an invading army. If you think about an invading army, they, they go into you and they, they, they want to invade and they want to take all your possessions, you know, all your valuables, your gold, your silver, your jewels. And that's what an invading army does. And he's saying the the inheritance that I give you is imperishable. He also says it's undefiled. What does undefiled mean? It means unpolluted, untainted with, e with evil. It's, uh, it's an undefiled inheritance that is unique to what the Christian will receive one day. And it's in marked and stark contrast to the treasures that we may treasure on this earth or in this life. Um, he also says it's unfading. Many times, this word unfading is often used of flowers. You know, flowers fade, um, the grass withers. And so the treasure and inheritance that he wants to give is the one that won't fade. And so this is an encouragement. They, they've lost everything. And just remind them, you have heaven to look forward to. You have the greatest gain that I will give you, God will give you one day in heaven. And so <clears throat> he's trying to say the things in this world Yes, they're valuable to you, but it's small. Wait, I'll give you one day. It'll be so much better, so much more worth it. And so the, I've said this so many times in different places, but I want you to be reminded of the truth. The gain of glory and the gain of your future inheritance far outweighs any pain that, and any loss and suffering that you may incur in this life. So the pain is little, the gain is great. In other words, the gain outweighs the pain. And so you might be saying, I'm just suffering so much. I'm struggling with fellowship. I'm struggling with all these things. I'm struggling with wearing a mask. My teeth are going bad because I'm not breathing right. Um, I have mask sores and all this stuff. It's little pain in comparison to the great gain you'll receive one day. May this help you to endure well. Verse 5. The gospel, this is one of my favorite verses as I'm studying here this week. The gospel is guarded in the present and also to deliver you from this present life into the future. And at the same time, the way God's power will guard will help you to have this living hope in this life and life to come. So Peter knows 
and, and believes and wants to apply the gospel skillfully in his life. And he wants us to do the same here and now. So he reminds us of God's power. How much power does God have? All power, right? He has unlimited power. So it's by God's power. And there's a couple ways to understand this. Um, that you will be granted this inheritance or is by God's power that we are being guarded through faith for salvation to be revealed at the last time. So I'm taking this as his, his God's power of sanctification, God's power to help us to endure from faith to faith, from this life and to the life to come. That's why I say from the present to the future here. That's more my take and that's where I'm leaning him, leaning in here. So Paul wants to remind us if we are insecure or worried about our present life, that God has this in his hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. God has given us so much power to guard us in this life. The word guard is a military word to me, and it means to literally keep or to protect or to shield. And so the verb here speaks of a constant guarding, a constant protection from God, that he will safely deliver us from this life to the life to come with all his power. That, that is great news. And so sometimes my mind just thinks about a lot of things. If I'm tortured, if I'm you know, cut up to a bunch of pieces, yes, my body won't look the same. And, but God will keep this promise and deliver me from this life to the life to come. And so we can know without a doubt that we could remind ourselves of God's gospel story in this life to encourage us. And at the end of this God's gospel story, that God will take us home one day. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you've made plans to book a hotel or a flight to a certain city and you get there and like, oh, your flight was canceled or your reservation, something happened and you just, you know, they didn't have your reservations for that hotel. I want you to know, because God will guard you, he will lock down this reservation. And when you go to heaven, he's not going to say, oh, your reservations weren't made. Your reservations are set and locked in and he'll let you into heaven because God guarantees this inheritance, this future hope by his power and his promise. And for that, we can know God's peace and security in our life now. And on what basis and what vehicle will God use to carry us from this life to next? God says very clearly, he uses the vehicle of faith. And so it's the vehicle of faith that we come to Christ. And so we call that saving faith, that we surrender our lives, our thoughts, and trust, <coughs> surrender our lives through trusting Jesus Christ and believing what he did on the cross, that he died for our sins and turning from our sins and turning to Christ. Um, that's saving faith. And then we continue to trust him. And I call that living faith. You continue to live out the gospel. And then one day that faith will be totally realized in the life to come. And so my question for us right now in the here and now is one, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Have you embraced him without a doubt and believe what he did on the cross and he rose again? As much as we know that, you know, our different presidents 
or even, I don't know, recently Rush Limbaugh died. These people died, but Jesus rose again from the dead. That makes it that much different. Do you believe that he rose again too and conquered death and trusted, do you, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? That's one question for you to munch on. The second question is, is deeper. And this is the one I want to talk to you. And I think this is what Peter wants to address is, is how do you live the faith that you've been granted? Do you live by faith or do you live by sight alone? I see so many Christians live by sight. And so when things get just a little bit bad and they're worried, they just crumble and they just crumble, they fall apart. And so Peter is concerned that these believers would live by faith and not just by sight. And so how do you live this life? And we'll look at, at that a little bit more, but I'm going to keep going. In verse 6, uh, Peter urges the, his believers and us today to, <coughs> we see how the gospel is applied in the present for living hope. And so he is very, <laughs> this is a very, very, very profound statement to apply the, go the gospel well in our present life in the midst of suffer suffering. God uses the laboratory life to teach us many things. And God uses suffering to, to weed out the dross and the impurities and the sin in our life. And so we see in verse six, he says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This little statement has a lot there. And so the main thing I believe Peter wants us to wrap our mind around is that our future is set. We have eternal security on basis of what God has done for you and his sovereign powers. And so... For that alone, God has secured our future, our main thing, way better than any 401k or retirement plan. Our future secured in heaven. And so the main thing is locked. It's a done deal. And because of that, you can rejoice. My future is secure. I don't need to worry about that. And I worry a little bit like how I'll die. But after that, boom, man, it's good. And I think Peter wants us to have some perspective on this life. The life that we live now, I don't know how long we'll suffer, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, another virus, another pandemic, whatever, personal suffering in your life. He's just saying, hey, that's a little while in comparison to eternal life, in comparison to God's great glory that he wants to grant you forever, that amazing reward. And he says, if you block your mind on that, you can rejoice. I mean, just think about it. If you won the lottery, you'll be pretty happy. I want you to know if you trusted Jesus Christ, that's better than any lottery. It's not happenstance. It's a, it's a done deal when it comes to the future. And he says, though now for a little while, however long you may suffer, your lifetime may be, if necessary, yeah, you may be grieved. For this period of time, I don't know how long it is, this lifetime or your period of suffering. But he says, yes, the grief is hard and it's difficult and it's painful. But 
What's greater is that you have every reason to rejoice because of what Christ has done and your future hope. And so just want to just kind of clarify a few things when it comes to trials. Um, Paul uses the word trial um, to talk about the problems believers do in a general sense. And so, so I'm just going to lay out four just biblical ideas, um, truths about trials. The first one is, is that trials are necessary. Um, God gives trials as a means to, to mature us, to discipline us, um, <clears throat> and to grow us, to help us to trust in him and cling on to him more. Fact number two <clears throat> is that trials are varied. Um, they're multifaceted. They're man <clears throat> they come in a varied way, multicolored. And so you might be saying, oh, I've gone through this trial. Well, guess God has you've gone through maybe the black color. Now here's the orange color. Here's the yellow color. He'll give you different trials. And many times he matches the trials to, to deal with your weaknesses in your life, to deal with the struggles in your life so that one of two things, um, you'll pass the test and you'll be strengthened in your faith or you'll fail the test and you'll recognize, wow, I have areas of growing in my, in my spiritual life. And he does that for your good. So you just know where you need to grow in. And that's a good thing. That's the same reason why we take tests today. So we know where we don't know about this particular aspect of our education. Fact number three is that trials are not easy. Trials are not easy. Peter did not suggest that we take a careless attitude toward trials because that would be deceitful. Rather, trials have this heaviness to them and they may produce this grief that he's talking about. And, and so he's urging um, these believers is to accept these trials and to cling onto them and just recognize they're not easy, but they're for your good and for God's glory. And then lastly, trials uh, are controlled by God. God. God is not throwing these cosmic trials at you and just like obliterating us for the fun of it, out of control. No, God is control of the degree of every trial we face. <clears throat> and God, I believe, in his cosmic hand is able to control the clock, how long this trial lasts. He's, he controls the thermostat, how hot this trial is. And, and he's looking at us and he's wanting to us what? He wa he's wanting us to learn the lesson. And he wants us to grow from this. And sometime if we don't learn the lesson, he may hit the repeat button and have us go through it all again so that we would learn the lesson he wants us to learn. So that's the nature of trials. And God wants us to grow in and through this. Um, <clears throat> verse 7. Count on the gospel um, in the present for the future. And so this is this, another thing God is doing. In verse 7, we looked at these trials. He says they're multifaceted, and now there's a divine purpose in verse seven, so that the test, so that the tested genuine genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that per, that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found as a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and so what. Peter is simply saying, hey, these tests, these trials are to refine your faith, to purify your faith. And so is this, Peter's using a picture of a goldsmith. And what a goldsmith does is basically he puts 
gold in hot temperatures to melt away the impurities to make a, a finer gold. And so according to Eastern goldsmith, we live in the West, Eastern goldsmith, they would keep the metals there in even longer and longer to the point that if you look at the refined melted gold, you would see the reflection of your face, your face. And so I believe God refines our faith so much. He puts us through these trials that we would look at the gold and we would see the face of Jesus, the reflection of Jesus, the conformity of Jesus, the transforming of Jesus in our life all the more. That as God refines us, that he would chisel out God and Christ, particularly Christ. He would form us in the image all the more. And so that's what God is doing through these trials. It's for our good and his glory. The sad thing is that most Christians, that's a terrible thing that I said, most Christians, you would think most Christians would go this way. But I feel like the Christians today, in my opinion, we're a bunch of weak Christians. And when trials come, we get mad at God. How dare you do this to me? And we get mad at God. And we just turn it inward and we just get bitter. And we either get mad at God, but most of us are too shallow to get mad at God. And so we just get bitter at people. We take it out on people around us. It's because of whatever, I'm mad at you. You know, they can blame their pastor. They blame their boss. They blame all the people around them. And, and then they, they, they can't handle the heat and they'll do anything and everything to hit the eject button. I need to go on a vacation. I need to quit this church. I need to do a lot of stuff. And God is trying to refine you, and you just want to jump out, and so you're only partially refined. God has put us together as a local church for our good and for our sanctification. It's a mess worth making, and that's why we have membership. And that's why we go through, I'll say, relational struggles to do the same thing, to continue to grow us and to form Christ and learn how to be patient, loving, understanding with each other. And so, yes... <laughs> God uses this refining so that we would be what? Rooted even more in the gospel, that we would reflect God's glory all the more. And so to this end, in the last part of the verse, the end resent is to the praise and to the worship of God, that we would give, him, give God far more glory, far more honor in this life and the life to come. Verses eight and nine. This is another fascinating Verse here, <clears throat> Peter wants his reader and us today to love and believe in the gospel constantly. It's not one time and I'm done in order to have a living hope. He's saying you just need to continue to love and, and believe in the gospel. How do I know that? Verse 8 says, though you have not seen him, though you have not seen Christ, guess what? You love him. It's, a, it's fascinating. We've never seen Jesus Christ but we love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And so this is how he's asking us to continue to move on. Though you haven't seen him or <laughs> though you haven't seen him, he wants us to continue to love him and believe in him. And as you do that, you can rejoice with joy. Guess what? With an inexpressible, that a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So, as the bumps come into the road of life, you're able to endure it because of the gospel. Sometimes when you hit the first big bump, you're like, man, that was a major bump. But that was just your first bump, and so it feels like the big bump. But when you go through life, you hit 
bigger bumps. As I've gone and been a pastor and just lived out this Christian life, every situation has always been harder and harder and harder. I've never come to a situation that's just easier. It's similar to some of the past ones, but they always get harder for some reason. I think because God is doing one of two things. He's saying, Gary, you need to learn more lessons. Also, two, he's wanting me to cling on to him and trust him all the more because things are harder. Um, and so God is saying, hey, continue to love me. Continue to believe me in the ups and downs and the challenges of this life. In the last half of verse nine, he says that you'll obtain, <coughs> ob uh, excuse me, the, the last part, obtaining the outcome of your faith the outcoming of your faith, that you'll know your salvation to be true and evident because you're living out not just a saving faith, but a true living faith. And a true Christian will endure. And we call that the perseverance of the saints. They'll persevere through trials. And then lastly, the last three verses here, the prophets, the apostles, and the Holy Spirit all confirm that the gospel is legit. It's worth banking our life on on every level. And so they said, concerning this, your salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace, the gospel that, <clears throat> that was to be yours. It was searched and inquired carefully in the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, they're like, is there grace there? And so they looked over and over. Yes, there's a God who redeems, a God who extends hesed and God's covenant mercy. And in verse 11, we see the Holy Spirit in play. We see the inquiring what people, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was in <laughs> indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glory. So over and over, the Spirit of God and the prophet proclaimed a particular time and person, Jesus Christ, and when he would come on the scene, would bear forth God's gospel story, his redemptive story, and make it relevant. And then the angels and the apostles in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that you now have, <clears throat> excuse me, have now been announced to you through those who preach the apostles, the good news, the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which the angels long to look. Yes, the angels, everyone's in play in affirming the gospel. So I'll conclude with this and we'll have communion. Far from your past defining you now and far from potential future dictating how you should live today, may we anchor our faith on the gospel and may we anchor our faith on the future fruit when salvation comes to an end, the consummation of the world, when Christ returns, may we anchor our faith in those two places and that will allow us to suffer well between their and then, and so because of that, we are able to rejoice in our salvation. We're able to rejoice in the gospel and we're able to suffer well. We're able to suffer really well. And so we could talk 
to each other about Christ and the gospel over and over and sing this song. And <clears throat> may the Spirit of God guard us well from now until then.